it took a solid year of understanding, I think, how to run the business. Once I got comfortable with that, how to hire people and fire people and run the business. Then I was like, no, I am the fucking CEO of this mess, and this is what we're doing. And that then became much easier, I think, for everybody else to be like, oh, okay, you're running this. Got it. So let me make a confession. I am a journalism nerd. Now, those of you who have listened to this podcast may have already known that. uh, But for those who are still kind of getting to know me, getting acquainted with me, uh, do know that I embrace and accept my journalism nerdery. And today I have the honor and the pleasure of interviewing my journalistic crush, Soledad O'Brien, representing the house of our journalistic conscience, the queen of professional ether, the lady of educated clapbacks, the slayer of nonsense. So we're about to get into it right now. Okay, so let me give you some receipts on Soledad O'Brien. She's the CEO of Starfish Media Group, her multi-platform media production company. While at CNN, she won three Emmys, two for her coverage of race issues and one for her reporting on the 2012 presidential election and her coverage of Hurricane Katrina at CNN. Hard to believe that was 15 years ago earned her the very prestigious George Foster Peabody Award. And by the way, she didn't win just one Peabody. She's won two of them things. She won another one for her coverage of the BP Gulf Coast oil spill. And now she's right here in studio with me. So I have my crush on today. And <laughs> everybody heard the female laughter like, oh, this is Ooh, about to get interesting. Well. My journalistic crush. Get your mind out the, good, <laughs> the gutter there. Uh, Soledad O'Brien, a journalist I have admired for a very long time. Except and I'm young, so no, that's not even possible. Oh, you're right. Two years, you're right. two and a half. You're right. Max. I've admired you for literally six months. <laughs> yes. So that's all that's been. But uh, I have the honor of having been named NABJ Journalist of the Year, an honor you also have received. And so the fact that that is our connective tissue. One of many things, frankly, that is the connective Because I kind of stalk you on Twitter. And I stalk you back. So I don't <laughs> right, I don't right. know what that's called. It's, it's, it's a mutual. relationship. It's a, we, we do. We go together. <laughs> yeah, we go yeah, together. We this do. is awesome. But not only the connective tissue of having received that award, but uh, I sort of followed your path because you were at CNN for a while. You struck out. You did your own thing. I was at ESPN forever. Struck out, you know, on my own, doing my own thing. There's a myth that there's not life after you leave a big, bold-faced name company. And I've actually left a couple, and it's always amazing to me how much life there is. It's incredible. Like, there's so... I mean, especially now where I think media's just gotten so diversified and there's just so many different opportunities and you now actually don't want to work for one person all the time. It's much more interesting to have 10 projects going, non-exclusive with all of them. But there was a time when it was like, oh, so you're not working at bold-faced company. Yeah. Oh, awkward. And you started your own production company. Yeah. Um, and as I did the same thing. I started my own production company. So in the You year, work with LeBron James and <laughs> and I don't. Uh, yeah. No. Well, but you you're you're out there. I have a crush on LeBron James. So it's yeah, Uh-oh. keep going. Uh, look, don't get me in trouble on this podcast now. <laughs> a basketball crush. A basketball Come on. crush. Of get course. That's, that's what I I knew you meant that. But uh, yeah, to be able to to do Shut Up and Dribble uh, with him and and his entertainment company, Spring Hill and Maverick Carter, yeah. that was certainly a, a, a lot of fun. But because I went through this, and so perhaps you can give me some insight on it. But when you left, did people almost treat you as if you were grieving? You know, when you left CNN as if like, are you okay? Are you all right? Is everything fine? Or did, because I, I get a lot of that. Like people felt like at, when I left ESPN that I was going to fall apart. I- had actually weirdly I get on a plane and someone would say I watch you every day I'm like that's not possible well, and you hadn't been on for I months I haven't done that show for <laughs> now, a year that definitely happens to me and I'm just but it does it does and you say thank you right the first you 10 don't times. even want to correct them and then at some point you're like bro I ain't worked this as <laughs> like I, I, somebody said that to me recently they're like I haven't seen you on ESPN you've been on vacation I literally left last September this is either the greatest vacation <laughs> 
I've ever accrued or you haven't been paying attention you to the fact. You might not be watching you the morning show. You might not be show. watching. Correct. <laughs> you know, I... I always felt that people just weren't sure what to say. And it really was hard for me to call myself a CEO for a long time. I felt very awkward. I just felt like I didn't really have the credentials. I had the title and I named myself CEO. But I was like, I I guess I'm running this company. And it took me a solid year before I really comfortably said, I'm the CEO. I have this other job. I'm the CEO. And, And it was fine. And I never had the, the mourning, you know, people mourning about stuff. I think CNN, um, my husband used to always say about CNN, if you hadn't left, you'd have to quit <laughs> because it's kind of gets a little crazy and messy. So I, I never got like the sad, pathetic look. I always just got the either people thought I was still there uh, or they just I wasn't selling that I had this other thing that I, I liked to do. And it, it took a solid year of understanding I think how to run the business. Once I got comfortable with that, how to hire people and fire people and run the business. Then I was like, no, I am the fucking CEO of this mess and this is what we're doing. And that then became much easier, I think, for everybody else to be like, oh, okay, you're running this. Got it. Yeah, I just had um, a brief chill because I was like, oh, my God, not only am I on a podcast with my journalistic crush, but she just dropped an F-bomb. I'm sorry. I curse so much. Don't apologize because I, as people know, listening to this podcast and they're figuring this out. Because when you I want to apologize to America. mm -mm, Don't apologize. Say fuck it as much as you want because I certainly (laughs) My mother, uh, who passed away recently, um, was cursed all the time, except that she's Cuban and she would curse wrong. Like, she'd be like, and I want to say shit to you. And you're like, that's not even a thing. What do you like? Oh, my God. That's not even how you say it, mom. She just couldn't get it right. That's how my grandmother was because she loved the English English language and she never sounded comfortable cursing. So she would put all the wrong stuff together. Right. So it wasn't a language barrier. She just didn't know how to do it. Like she couldn't string together the motherfuckers to save her life. Right, right. <laughs> she and then, said all proper, like, motherfucker. I was like, no. Right. Like, don't bl- bother. Don't bother. You're black from Detroit. <laughs> we don't say it that way. It's like you you skip the T and it's just motherfucker. That's <laughs> yeah, the way right, it is. Right. But no, that that's interesting that you say that, that you had to learn to kind of promote so people could associate you with something else. Were you one of those broadcasters where it wasn't that important for you to be on television every single day? I definitely thought like, well, if I'm not anchoring and reporting, what am I doing? And probably my first mistakes, even in in meetings that I would have with people, I love stories. So I'd pitch stories and and people would be like, yeah, 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 the story. We need to understand like, what do you want? What's the framework of what you want to do? Like, oh my God, there's a great story. So there's this guy and he lives in Texas and what he does, you know, and they'd be like, whatever, lady, what, you know, six part series, 10 part series, what's the arc of the series? And that was really hard for me. I found a lot of comfort in reporting. I, I literally, CNN was my first client. So uh, I agreed like an idiot to do uh, a bunch of documentaries for them. And I didn't realize that I should have started the clock like three months after because I was on my dining room table with all my stuff. I didn't have an office. And my husband's like, so we're eating here. We're, this is not going to stay. We're going to have a, you're gonna have an office, right? I didn't, you know, I just hadn't thought like, oh, I have 18 months to do this, you know, but the clock's ticking now. So I was trying to get that done and then build out office space. Well, how many square feet do you need and, and where is it? And and how big is your company going to get? And, and how big do you want it to be? And how many people is that? And how do you actually do a budget and think about what the next five years looks like? All those things I really had no idea how to do. And I felt very in over my head. But I had a lot of people who were incredibly nice about helping. I mean, they draw out how they ran their business, like on the back of a napkin, like, here's how we think about it. And it was really, really helpful for me. So I think once I started getting comfortable with the, here's how we run it, then I started really feeling like I don't have to be on TV every day. Then I didn't want to be on TV every day. I got good at doing deals. Like something, you know, it's so funny when you work for a big company, there's these rules. Everybody gets X amount of vacation. Everybody does this. The shift is this to this. This is what it is. When you run your own thing, all of a sudden it's like, well, what, what do we both want out of this, right? We Can we come to an agreement on what I want and what you want? And that everything was negotiable. Everything you could solve if both people were trying to get to something. And that became really interesting. And I got good at doing deals that I never really thought that I would be good at. So I think I didn't freak out so much that I wasn't on air. But the first couple of weeks when big stories would break, 
like, oh, I hope someone calls me to send me to go cover the, you know, no one's calling to send me. Um, but then I started doing occasional, what I do now, I, I report, we do a show called Matter of Fact, uh, which is uh, Hearst, um, we co-produce it with Hearst, which has been a really successful show. It's a Sunday morning type show. And, um, and that's been fun to kind of keep your fingers in political news, but not live and breathe it. And uh, Real Sports with Brian Gumbel, who I love. And, and that's been a great job as well. It's, I mean, I think it's the best show on TV. And I'm like, and I anchor a different show. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's been really, I've enjoyed it. I like doing things here and there and having kind of multiple jobs. I don't know if you you had this feeling as well, but did you feel a real boost to your creativity once you have you have this freedom to be able to yeah. pick and choose what exactly you want to be involved Two in? Two things. Yeah. One, what do you want to do, right? What do you want to do when it could really be anything? And you realize like, oh, I'm always coloring within these lines. Oh, you know, I want to do this to this. and And also not working with people I didn't like. Oh, I had some that's people a word right? right there. That some is people a word. that I just if I didn't like them to be able to say we should not work together ever again. Ever. We and actually you shouldn't call me ever. Like we're I, done. I'm good love enjoy. Totally. Yeah. And and it was very pleasant to uh, I had a friend who used to describe it as like you get to create your environment. And if people are unhappy, like you're creating it. And if people are inspired, you're creating it. So Go and create the environment you want to work in, you want to have people be creative in. What do you want to do? It was really pleasant to be able to say I have an assistant who I, I love, and she was commuting about two hours every day. And I was like, you know, you don't have to do that. Like, I travel constantly. You can work from home. Here's what I need. I need someone who on a Sunday, if I want to have a cup of coffee with you, we should get together. Like, you know, that's, I'm sure, against every rule in HR. But, like, if you're cool with having coffees with me some Sunday so we can walk through my calendar, I'm good with you only coming in once a week. And, of course, she's like, done. <laughs> right? Like, let's get that coffee. And just coming up with, like, new strategies for doing stuff and working with the, keeping the people you like and, you know, offing the people you don't. No, that's what I find to be truly liberating is that now I only take projects with people whose values, and that doesn't mean, I hope people understand, values doesn't mean they agree with everything I say. But they should agree with everything you say. No. <laughs> I'm kidding. I will keep that in mind. Kidding. <laughs> kidding. But um, no, whose values are aligned with mine and people, I don't I don't work with people I don't fuck with. Oh, I just don't. God. Some people are heavy lifting. You know, you're like, I, there's not time in my life to just be miserable. I don't want to be a miserable person. I don't want to work with miserable people. I want to work with fun, talented, and even people who are not so talented who are trying to figure it out. Happy to work with them. But if you're mean, if you're a bully, if you're obnoxious, if you're an asshole, I'm done. We're good. Right. Totally good. And that actually has been the biggest plus of running my own thing. Mm. Just being like, nope to you, yup to you. Mm. Now, do you feel your voice... Um, is more powerful now because, uh, you know, you're independent and and you have this um, all this leeway and versatility and different ways that you can, um, you know, kind of execute your talent. You feel more your voice is, is stronger. I definitely think that I'm more connected to the voice that I have. I mean, it's so funny. Literally, wherever I go, I have people and they're a very diverse group of people be like, I love your Twitter. <laughs> and I'm like, I Yo. wish that were a job. Because I have a lot of fans. I wish that were like a pain. You would, you would be a hell of an ombudsman. Right? Right? You would Although be. sometimes I'm mean to Jack, so not such a good ombudsman <laughs> because I'm honest and I think he's challenging. You know, whatever. I can't even get into Jack today. Uh, but I really, I, I, I do think I've connected to, I have a very authentic voice on that stuff. And so when people like that or they just want to hear about it, then they like it. And and then other people feel like, listen, I get this is what you're doing. You know, we should not do something together because we're trying to reach this audience or or we really want to say this thing that you clearly don't agree with. And so, I, you know, I think it's actually just been helpful. It's certainly been good for our business because – but I think it's it's not because of the content. It's because people feel like, oh, I really get a sense that you have this authentic – sense about you. And most of what I, I call bullshit on is really the media. The media is such a, I mean, it's such a game. I Sometimes I feel like I'm just helping people see, like, let me help you explain the game that's being run on you right now so that you understand that this is a game that's being run on you. And, and probably more than even anything political, being able to explain how that stuff works, you know, is, is both, it's, I think I have an expertise in that, but it's also depressing, right? Because it doesn't change. It's been the same way since I started in 1987 at WBZ-TV in Boston. 
the conversations don't change. They don't. Um, but I guess now that because of social media and certainly because of the administration we have, sort of the, the media vulnerabilities and the issues with the media to me are more pronounced. Mm-hmm. And because one thing you've been very strong on and I am in a, a thousand percent agreement uh, with you is that networks that put known liars on television. That shit drives me crazy because I don't know why. Why we? Why is Kellyanne Conway still on television? I don't understand it. It's like she lies all the time, and it's not one of those things where because every television person has had somebody on their show who may massage the facts, but the facts are still the facts. They just may spin them to try to best reflect whatever they're trying to sell or whatever they're trying to spin. But we're talking about people in this administration that go on TV and straight up lie. And yet they're always booked. They always booked and busy. And it just it it drives me crazy to see the media pandering to that nonsense. And so I noticed that you are very good at calling um, that part out of it. Do I just found like the, the lack of expert when I started working at CNN, which was in 2003. I mean, the standards that they held were so high. Like, you couldn't go, you couldn't do a medical segment without a medical expert. So the idea today that people sit around and talk about climate change with politicians who clearly have a dog in the fight, which which they're not revealed, right? No one's saying, but listen, sir, I mean, you are obviously getting paid by X, Y, and Z. It's it's just really people who don't know anything about climate change talking about climate change, people who don't know anything about abortion, the medical way in which abortion happens or anything about reproductive health at all from any kind of intelligent, knowledgeable medical perspective get to sit on television in a high profile gig and wax poetic about something they know nothing about. It's really it's really stunning and it's really depressing and it doesn't have to be that way. Uh, it's the saddest thing. I, I, I am very disappointed about just the lack of of reporting. I mean, the way it used to be was Someone would go into the field and tell a story, and then the talking heads would comment on, well, you know, what you're not seeing there is this, or hey, my position on this is this. But everybody started from, here's the story on the ground. Here's what's happening. We've tried to do that. As a matter of fact, I mean, actually, I think it's one of the reasons our show's doing really well, because we just go and do a lot of reporting. Um, we did a story about a guy, actually, who's in San Diego, who... Housing has gotten so expensive in San Diego. He's American. He's moved to Mexico. He lives in Mexico and commutes to his job in San Diego every day because the housing is a quarter of the cost of what it is in San Diego. And really looking at policies around, you know, for example, housing policy in America through a story of a person. That's kind of how the news used to do it, not just – this senator says yes. This senator says no. I think that's just a waste of time and energy. There's so many good stories. It's it's just an embarrassment. And these companies, I mean, CNN makes a lot of money. They certainly have a great opportunity and the budget to go and do good stories. Well, it's just probably the biggest change that I've seen. Um, this is my 21st year in journalism. And probably uh, the biggest change that I've seen is that the, the bend toward opinion has been, it went from being, okay, you'd get Say if you watch CNN, for example, you'd get a lot of shows that were reporting based and you get some opinions sprinkled in there now. And this is even how ESPN is, is that the majority or huge percentage of the shows are opinion based. And uh, so people, they don't find out, um, you know, the complexities of certain issues because debate and discussion and hot take TV and spitting fireballs at people kind of became the thing. And that's why whatever network you have out there, I think people, they tend to follow the network based off whatever their opinion is, as opposed to who's the best at telling a story. Yeah, and it's just cheap. I mean, really, yeah. having 10... Yeah, that's true. Right? Yes, I mean, it's very you, cheap. It Much used to be to it. that it cost, you know, you'd spend $150,000 per person to be a contributor, roughly. That's, you know, for... Obviously, some people are much higher than that. But then, let's say you have 20, 25 that you've hired. I mean, that's your network. So when you have nine people around the table and they're being paid that for an entire year, you can just be on air all the time. And there's no cost. Sending people into the field to report is very expensive. Sending teams. I remember when we covered Hurricane Katrina, we had 50 teams. 50 teams went into New Orleans. Now, I mean, you look at the aftermath of Paradise, California. We're shooting there and right now, so we're doing a piece that'll air in a couple of weeks. There's no one there with us. At Paradise, California, which obviously had that huge fire, there's so many toxic chemicals 
that they can't live there. It's it's an absolute disaster. No one's reporting from there. No one's updating anybody on it. And they just feel like they've been completely abandoned because they have. And you think, yeah, because it costs $50,000 to send a crew and camp out there and send shooters and producers and talent to go and do those stories. It's not cheap. It's much more expensive than just having talking heads waxing poetic on the air. And it's really disappointing. So when I was... Um uh, as a because I started as a print reporter and the TV thing just kind of happened. There was there seemed to be more of a, a mixture of people who want to go into print and people who want to go into broadcast. Um, Might have been 50 50 or worse to me, it was like 60 40 people wanting to be on television and, and anchor. These days, it seems like no one wants to write, everybody wants to be on television. I never thought it was possible. And, and and tell me if you if I'm just in a bubble or if this is the sense you get when you talk to young, younger journalists. It seems like more of them want to be stars or more of them want to be television stars by however way you want to define that in a celebrity Listen, way. If you have the Real Housewives of whatever saying, I understand that everybody's making $5,000 an episode. But if you're the crazy asshole you know, who's over the top, you're making $150,000 an episode. You want to be her. I mean, it's a simple economics game. You break out, you get your own fashion line, you get a business. I mean, it makes sense. So I really do understand a lot of these people saying, well, why am I waiting in line in the hopes of something breaking my way when I can make myself Instagram famous, get a lot of followers? And by the way, people do calculate that. People calculate that all the time. How many followers do you have? What is your social reach? That impacts whether or not you're going to get opportunities. So I'm, I'm not surprised. I also think, listen, the industry's changed so much that there's just no more print alone. You're, I would never tell anybody in print that, that, that they have to be able to make sure that they can shoot or do video or at least be on television. They have to be able to write. They should be able to be on radio. Like You have to do all of those things. There's no one who just, there are very few people who are just, you know, I just sit down, I write my column, I turn it in. It's all good. I don't know that that job exists for young journalists today, really. No, it doesn't. Um, but I guess it's just the reasons they want to be on TV is is much different than I'd seen at previous points in, in my career. Yeah, they always want to do that. Yeah, but it's, it feels like now even so that like they they believe they can make a lot of money doing this. They can. I mean, <laughs> I, you can. I'm not saying, but you know, when I when I graduated from college, the average salary for a journalist was $19,000 a year, right? Yeah, I made eleven. You did you? I made twenty two my first job. <laughs> so painful. <laughs> I thought I was balling. Nineteen eighty seven. Eleven grand. By the way, you can't really live on that very well in I, Austin. Not even then could you live right, on that, right, right? Right. But nevertheless, like it because of you know TV and and celebrity journalism, they look at it as oh, I can come out and I can make six seven figures. I'm like, hey, no, you can't. I mean, you might get but to that. Don't you think some of these print reporters who then have gigs on air? fully recognize that they can turn this coverage of Donald Trump into a book oh, and oh, to a can, movie. Once and to you a, get there, you can flip the hustle. So, There's no question about right. it. So yeah. I, I, they're sort of doing the same thing as these young people. Young people, I think, just don't exactly understand the economics. But I mean, right, they're, they're kind of like, I have access. I can turn this access. All I need to do is some interviews where I, you know, get a little more access and however I make that happen. I see it all the time. And, and then then they turn it into a successful podcast, which becomes a successful series, which becomes, you know, I, I really, I really, I really get it. I mm. do. I, it's, you know, very few people are like, I'm toiling away because I want to be a great journalist and this stuff really matters to me. And I understand why, because there's very few executives who are like, yes, we support that and it should be good journalism and we should win awards. Yeah. It just seems like a, just a much different um, mindset. But then again, I'm old woman yelling at cloud. So it's probably... You're old that I'm ancient. So you're not old. You're very, very young. Uh, uh, now, what do you tell younger journalists? Because I'm, I, you know, I, I, I've seen you be mobbed at ABJ before. That's the National Association Listen, of Black Listen, if you journalists. ever need a great, like, pick me up from young people to be around you being like, oh my God, NABJ. I was just there. I was in, where was I? Was that? I was in Cincinnati the other day. You know, I say... One, do not be on social media like I'm on social media. I, I follow the social media rules of Soledad O'Brien's Starfish Media Group <laughs> okay. very, very closely. Do you like, have a social media policy for yourself? We actually do, and what? for everybody in the company, absolutely. Okay. And we really, may, you know, and I, I, I want them to know that wherever you're working, you've agreed to a social media policy. So you have to keep with that. Like, that's 
what you've signed up for when you've decided to go work for that organization. And to really think strategically about what they want to do and leverage those opportunities within the company and to not get depressed about how so much seems to not change. I mean, I feel like the same conversations we had about race and access and opportunity are what we had in 1987, you know, and everybody's just, it all just is the same. But there are some really good opportunities, even when it feels like people aren't rooting for you. They're really great creative things that you can get to do, even when your bosses don't like you, you mm. know, and, and even getting fired from shit sometimes opens up very interesting doors that you probably would have been too afraid to walk through by yourself if it hadn't been like, you know, you have an opportunity here. You can stay and take a lesser job and and your bosses don't believe in you or you can walk. And to me, you know, I don't know that I would have made the choice of walking if it hadn't been positioned like that. I mean, the job that I was sort of offered was like, hey, listen, you can be the fill-in, you know, gal for Anderson and everybody. I was like, you know, I don't know that that's fulfilling for me. But I don't know if it hadn't been posed that way, if one day I would have been like, you know what, I'm going to start a production company and I'm out of here and I'm leaving you guys. I don't know that I would have done that anytime soon. Mm. Is there any circumstance other than paying you backing up the the Brinks truck? <laughs> is there any circumstance where you can imagine yourself going back to network television? Oh, absolutely. I, I love I As love, a full-time, like... Full that shirt, full-time. See, I I know you can one-off, full and I know you could do a yeah. series, but, like, could you go back? Full-time would be very hard because I really enjoy running a company, and that is that just takes a ton of work. It just You just have to be there. You have to manage people, and you have to manage processes. I don't really want to do anything full-time, and, and doing morning TV was a grind. I don't know that I'd ever go back to that because it, it was just hard. I was so tired all the time. I mean, I used to, when I did the morning show, we drank a lot. Like we'd have every 9 a.m. I'd have a Cosmopolitan and a, a chicken burger at Landmark was a restaurant. I'm sorry, right I here. feel like that's my dream right now. Right? <laughs> a chicken burger, a Cosmopolitan. And every morning I'd start with a king size Snickers bar and three shots of espresso. That was my, like, that's all I ate all day. Every day. Wow. Every single day. And I didn't think that was weird. But you were just like, wake up and then just try to keep it going till you threw yourself into bed. And now I look back and I'm like, God, that was just miserable. Like I was so tired all the time. So I don't think I'd ever want to do a grind like that. Plus, the project work is so interesting. You know, because then you can't do the eight-part series, the ten-part series, dropping it on a dock. Even now, like, I get to sometimes play myself. I'm not a very good actor, so but I'm good enough to play myself. Although my daughter said the other day, she's like, Mom, I could do a better job than you doing you. <laughs> Wait, was it uh, Superman you were in? I was in Superman. Yeah. And actually... I was super jealous. I was in Superman, and I was good at me. And so then they're like, listen, what we need you to do is pretend the building is collapsing behind you. And da 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 And I was so bad. And I'm like, wait, I think I can get it. They're like, no, no, we're good. I was like, wait, no, I really think I got it this time. They're like, no, no, we're After actually. The 44th take. We like, try, ah! I tried so hard. It's hard. Acting is really hard and impossible for me. Uh, but if I'm doing me, I can do it. Then you that. nailed it. I'm, You're the best you I'm ever. I'm a very good me. But <laughs> well, that's about it. Yeah, I got a chance to play me on um, Luke Cage oh. uh, on Netflix. And. Uh, that is when I understood that acting would never be my testimony. Yeah. Not, um, you know, that's not to say anything about my own skills. I don't think I have any, but people do not understand how long those scenes take. And we may have had three lines and it was 12 hours. And I was like, you got to be Plus, I forget my me. line. And then you <laughs> yeah. feel terrible because you're like, every, everybody's done it, done it, done it. And then they get to you and you're like, oh, I can't remember my line. <laughs> and they're looking at you like, who brought the rookie in here? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but I, I, I thought that was um, that was pretty cool. Now, as you mentioned, as you said, like if you went back to full time doing like a morning grind or any kind of daily television grind, it would prevent you from doing a lot of things. Imagine it would prevent you from maybe doing things like the the aftermath of R. Kelly, the yeah, surviving R. Right. Kelly. A, a short-term project yep. that was really interesting to take a look at all that had happened. I mean, obviously, like everybody else, I watched it. And you could tell the audience was growing night after night. People were like, oh, my God. Icing on the cake, of course, was Gail King, the mm -hmm. master. The master. <laughs> what an interview, right? Wow. <laughs> what an interview. You know, it's somewhat, just, just clip that and just show it in classrooms. Like, it's everything that you need to be if you're going to do a good interview, right? Robert. 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 Yeah. She was sounding Robert. like auntie in chief right uh -huh. there. Like, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. And, and so I thought it was a great opportunity to kind of catch everybody up on what had happened since the documentary had 26, more than 26 million people watched it. 
So it was incredible. And I, I didn't even know all that had happened certainly in terms of the court cases, in terms of all that had happened in social media, new people who had stepped forward, sort of everything else that had happened. So we were really interested in, in kind of just assessing that. Yeah. Is that why you chose it, just your own personal interest or did it? Yeah, I thought it was a really interesting update. And yeah, I just thought it was something that I had watched like everybody else and was interested in seeing. I didn't know all that had happened. So I wanted to find out as well. For you, um, when you decide to get involved in a, a project that's you know, storytelling related to a documentary, a, a story, or even in the situation with R. Kelly, like what has to be there in order mm. to pique Soledad O'Brien's interest? Some of it is just, is it going to be fun to do? Is it going to be interesting? I've tried to get, and some of my advice to young people is make sure if you're looking at yourself as like a list of a skill set, you know, it has to be different. You have to get something out of it. You want to grow. You want to do something you haven't done before. Um, usually it's based around who's doing it. Is it somebody fun? Is it someone I've always wanted to work with? Is it going to be an opportunity for me to see so-and-so? And and will you be a little challenged and will it be hard to do? Uh, so that's sort of how I think about it. If it's just the same old, same old, like, hey, we know you did this and we thought we'd do the same thing. I'm just too old. It's just, it's not that interesting. I mean, somebody else can go in and, and do that. But uh, I think it just has to be, is it, is it, does it make you just say, wow, this is something that I want to do? Is it different? Do you anticipate as we get closer to uh, 2020, another presidential election, that you'll be doing more on the politics end of things? So much. I can't even tell you. Okay. It's crazy. I mean, we've had so much outreach. And again, I think some of that is because of my voice which is just like this is I'm going to call it as I see it and I'm going to tell people from my perspective you know how this stuff gets on air how these shots are set up how these meetings happen I know I've been in this business a really long time so yeah I, I think it's going to happen I we're already having discussions about it and I like being involved in politics in a way but not being I mean I would have to jump out a window if I were a white house correspondent I can't imagine I can't imagine a worse job and not just because they don't do briefings anymore and all that, but you also have to stand there and kind of pretend like everything's normal and regular, right? There's a certain amount of of, of just like, yep, hey, good evening, Jane, here's what's happening from here, as opposed to like, this is crazy, we haven't had a briefing, and there's so much going on around us that it's just, once again, tonight, spinning out of control. I just don't know that I could do that. So I like having kind of the occasional jump in and, and giving context. And we still shoot a lot. We're in the middle of a bunch of documentaries. Our company started doing a lot of branded work around storytelling. So we've got a bunch of other projects. Yeah, because I don't know how some of the correspondents, how don't, I, I'm amazed they don't sort of bend to the temptation to come on air one time and be like, hey, y'all, shit is fucked up right now. Right. And just say that and be I'm like, that's all I got for you, right? It's fucked up. But I, don't I know want what to tell someone you. to do, I like, <laughs> you know, for example, Melania's uh, Be Best, right? How do you cover that as if it's a thing when it's, I mean, clearly, objectively, it's not a thing. There are no measurable goals. Nothing has been met. We all know that the person who is a giant online bully is her husband. It's never mentioned. She herself is a birther. That's a fact, you know? Right. All uncomfortable facts, but all just facts. How do you go as a reporter and cover that story like it's a normal story when there's all this other context that you sort of have to ignore in order to do a decent job on the story? I strive to have that little self-awareness um, because I, there are a lot of, as everyone knows, a first lady typically does pick a campaign because um, I believe Michelle Obama picked childhood obesity mm -hmm. and health. and But there's always a... First ladies always pick a campaign to be involved in. And it's hard. It, it, it blows my mind that nobody said, you might not want to pick cyberbullying. Just based off, unless you oh, want to I think it's intentional. Her, it's just like I she's just it's, trolling all of us. It's yeah, like, really? I, think it's, I do. I think it's intentional. It's like you could have picked, I don't Gaslighting. know. It's 100% dental intentional. Dental health. Like you, you really didn't have to pick the most obvious kind of thing in the in in the room. And um I, I don't think a lot of people really are aware of how the White House is covered. So just being on social media, you sense a lot of frustration for people. Like, why aren't they asking this and that? Because one of the things I noticed is that the, the room changed. Mm -hmm. Like there's a lot of outlets that never had this kind of access to the to the White House that are very, I don't know, nationalistic, <laughs> you know, that now get to ask questions that are clearly meant to you know, trumpet a certain uh, a certain message. 
And so I don't think people even understand, even in those That was a very long way of saying some full-on white supremacists are getting to ask questions. I don't even know why I was being nice about it. It's like, yeah, it's it's some, because I hate using the term all right, because I'm like, really, you're just white supremacists, all right, with a better name. It is a, it's a whole, it's a whole different thing. Although I do think sometimes you have people asking these, you know, yes, no questions. And I get it. I have been in that situation where you've got one second to throw out your question. It's hard to really frame it in a way where you're going to get a thoughtful answer. But often those questions are yes or no. And then nobody, the president himself certainly doesn't do a good job or doesn't really illuminate in his answer, right? It's it's much better to ask him why. Right. Why are you, is it, are you not allowing McGahn to testify because you're nervous about what he's going to say? Is that, you know, is that the reason, or can you tell me the reason why? Right. Right, where the person then has to give you an answer that makes sense. So um, do you expect uh, for 2020 that Donald Trump, that the coverage... No. Nope. You (laughs) you already knew what I was going to ask. Look, it's a mess. It's already a mess, right? The way I think women are covered. Why would we change the underlying... You know what they always say, the underlying economics have not changed. The underlying structures haven't really changed. And also, the media has not really done a deep dive into what they fucked up, what they did wrong. CNN used to have a camera just focused on an empty podium. And we see today, or in the last couple of days, they've been talking about President Trump's finances, how in the 80s, he was like the only guy losing money when everybody else was making money. In the 90s, you know, there was obviously financial problems for lots of people. But the the reporters really didn't do a good job, even when there were all these signs. People in New York City knew banks would not loan him money. Citibank would not loan him money. But people just did not loan him money because they knew he wasn't good for it. The 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 Central Park Five story was well known. These weren't secrets. I didn't cover Donald Trump specifically, and I knew them very well. So journalists just decided that it was fun to have him just dial in, to have him be wacky, to have him be, you know, the centerpiece of their coverage, to have him swing by, to have him be a guest. CNN used to put him front and center. It wasn't, I remember Jeb Bush, I was at some event and he he said to me, it's like, it's so unfair. Like everybody just, the whole thing is served up to make him the centerpiece. And then what we shouldn't be surprised when he's the centerpiece. It's this vicious cycle that doesn't, we're not really trying to figure out who's got the most interesting policies on the Republican side in this conversation. It's just theater. It's all theater. And I see no signs that the theater is going to end. So what's the mistake the media is making in terms of how um, the female presidential candidates are being covered right now? You know, I, I say think, mistakes. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I I don't know. I think some of it is just is just subtle. I think it's in how you see magazine covers. The guys are all the same. It's like one art director. Everybody rolls up their sleeves, right? They look like they just I just finished farming the land, and now I've come out to give it, be, get my picture taken so I can be on the front, you know, cover of a magazine. Just the same old, same old, right? I thought the greatest mistake was Amy Klobuchar eating her salad. It wasn't a salad yeah. with her with her comb, which was so funny because my mom and I once ate a pie with a comb and I was like, oh my God, I actually have done this. <laughs> I didn't think it was that weird. We were really hungry. I don't know why, why did you eat a, a, some pie with so, a comb? I grew up in Long Island and there, we used to have this little beach house that was near a, um, a farm. And that farm, what's the name of that farm? They had in Kutchog, Long Island, and they had the best strawberry rhubarb pie. So good. So one time, we're leaving our little house that we had rented, and we have our strawberry rhubarb pie, me, my mom, my dad. And we're like, I'm kind of hungry. How are you feeling? And I'm like, all right, well, we have a pie. We just didn't have anything to cut it because we weren't going to eat it. We are going to save it until we got home. And I was like, I have, a ni- I have a comb. And we cut into our pie. My parents, by the way, were the most straight-laced, uptight, and upright people. And I cut into that pie with a comb, and then we ate slices of the best strawberry rhubarb pie ever with our hands. Now you know that's mad hood telling that. That's, that's like a layer. That's like a level of hood that I just amazing. Don't even Wickham's. Un- yes, it Wickham's, was Wickham's okay. Fruit Farm, okay. and it was amazing. And so, like, I don't know. You could eat, listen. Anybody who's ever been on the road, right, has had a scenario where you're like, listen, I don't really have a fork. I guess I'm going to use my comb. Come on. I never thought of the comb. I I, I have to say, hand. Yes, obviously, I'm happy to make the hand a scooper and just. But never. How to eat a of, salad with your hand? 
well, that's true. Um, I can't say it's too many times I haven't had silverware that I've had a salad. Luckily, it's been things that I can just paw. So it's it's been good. But like that was out of control, right? The whole thing became, you know, isn't she crazy? Isn't she mean? Isn't she... You know, and, and I remember once she snapped at her or said something about someone not preparing her well. And I was like, she's right. If if you're in a town and you say something wrong and you're running for president, yes, your staff has screwed that up. That's mm. a mistake. That is a very big mistake on a public stage when you're running for the highest office in the land. Guess what? She should be a little bit pissed. It is okay. People should be held accountable and be held to a very high standard. She would like to be president. I think that's okay. But I think the coverage, right, is just very different. And and that's – it's always that way. It's always that way. Yeah, I mean, just like with uh, Kamala Harris. I mean, I think this obsession with her blackness is just – is driving me crazy because – you know, if uh, there's a segment of people she just can't seem to please, I'm like, the woman went to Howard. She's clearly proud to be black, all right? She's an AKA, all right? Like, and I knew that some of the same energy that she has received, a lot of it from our own community, it would not be there for Joe Biden. I knew it wouldn't. Right. And so if they're going to hold some of the things she did as prosecutor against her, which people have a right to question, I'm not saying that, that's all fair game. But, you know, if that if that's the case, Joe, Joe Biden wrote the crime bill. All right. And you're trying to blame mass incarceration on Kamala Harris. She was a prosecutor. Part of her job was to put people in jail. And so this idea that she has sometimes has somehow betrayed the black community by being on that side of it is just preposterous. But yet all that energy seems to be there for her and uh, people dissecting what she eats and when she went on the breakfast club the whole controversy over when she said she smoked weed did she really smoke weed when she was listening to snoop because he wasn't out there i was like really we're actually having this conversation for the women you will you will you will absolutely dig into every single detail of what they're saying and the guys it's like yeah, they'll they, get a pass. Yeah, definitely. Uh, meanwhile, Elizabeth Warren is just. I have a plan. Yeah, <laughs> she has a plan. It's actually a great slogan. I have a plan. <laughs> I have a plan. It's just that nobody seems to be listening to well, it. Well, the problem is, news doesn't care about your plan. Uh, truly, and they never have cared, right? Then, and that I think is such an incredible disservice to the American public because I actually think people do want a plan. They are furious and freaked out about how am I going to pay for college? These people who are middle class who have a good job. How do you pay for college? Berkeley School of Music costs $70,000 a year, $70,000 a year. How, how, if you have a kid who's talented and has a dream to go off to, to Berkeley, how are you going to pay for that? I don't know. I don't even have any kids, but I tell you what, I pay 70 grand a year for my child to go to music school. They better be Beyonce after year one. Okay? Absolutely. <laughs> That's straight they, up. They, like you know, now, you're like, now that you're Beyonce, I feel like I can invest $70,000 <laughs> right. in you. Exactly. Well, look, we're going to put a, a pin in this and get to more because I want to talk about your family and what life is like for you with four teenagers <laughs> um, in the house. And we'll, we'll talk about that and some other things uh, after the break. All right, I'm here uh, chopping it up with Soledad O'Brien, my journalistic crush. So uh, we talked a lot about politics and media and that kind of thing. I want to talk about you and your life. Um, my favorite topic. Yes, me. I want to talk about yes. you. <laughs> uh, not just get your hot takes on all these other things. Uh, so you are raising four teenagers. You have two girls. I two love boys. teenagers, and I would not have thought that. I actually thought Seriously? Teenage, yeah, thirteen-year-olds. You're the first parent I've ever heard say this. Some, oh my god, toddlers were a nightmare, and I love them. They're so cute, but they are really basically a circle of hell. And, and and teenagers are thoughtful and they're interesting. Girls have a little drama. I like my children so much more. They're 18, 17. My twin boys are 14. They're just fun. They're so, I like hanging out with them. I really, really enjoy them. And I did. I, I thought, you know, the myth was always that teenagers are a nightmare. And they're really not. They're they're much better. I thought little kids were hard. Right. And, and hard in the not fun way. They were very cute, but just, just hard and my sister has seven kids. She's a professor of, of law, and she has seven kids. And she used to say all the time, like, when they're little, you know, you don't get the sense, that, like, the, the joy you get out of your job. Like, wow, that was a good day. I got this accomplished. I think I did this. Well, you know, this probably needs some work. You know, kids don't say, like, listen, Mom, overall, I'd give you a B plus. I felt that it was a strong start. Lunch 
needed some work, but you know, we believe in you and we're going to move forward. Like you just get no feedback. It's just like you, you, you roll from disaster to disaster. When they're teenagers, it's actually really fun. So I, my kids are on a very fun stage right now and much better than I had four under four for a while. And that was just, it was, it was hell. It was literally exhausting and miserable. And they were mostly healthy and mostly, you know, fine, well-behaved kids, but it was really hard. Wow. So you're not that far away from being an empty nester. Actually. Oh my God, I know. And I'm so excited. So when my... when I'm I, so excited. <laughs> well, I was number five. My parents okay. had six kids. Mm-hmm. And literally when I went off to college, my parents knocked down the wall to my bedroom and built out their bedroom. <laughs> like, they, and, and they did it in the first week that I was in college. Oh, wow. And so they just had no shame. They're like, you know, we love you, but we actually have always wanted a much bigger bedroom. I, I... I, I like seeing my kids grow up. I'm excited for my daughter to go off to college. I'm excited to go and, and hang out with her in college and take her out for lunch and meet her friends. I, I'm excited for them to go on to do interesting things. Uh, I want them out of the house and being challenged and having great jobs and great opportunities. I, you know, I see their lives as kind of like, not like they're leaving me, but we're, we're getting to do different things together. Mm, now, do any of them want to do what you do? Any want to be any journalist so. in training? Or? No, I, I, my daughter I, was really interested in acting for a while, my second daughter. And I think she has then started focusing on, she's a diver, she's a competitive diver. And I think in the last year and a half, she started really focusing on diving. And she just started getting good at it. So I think it just took her interest. So, you know, I think acting is a little bit on, on off to the side. But so, no, I don't think anybody, I think they tra- They think I travel too much. I like to travel, but I, I definitely travel too much. And I think that's hard for them. Um and I don't think they have an interest in in reporting. Mm. So, um, you know, having a career, having four kids, I mean, I don't want to even use the B word as in balance because I know that didn't exist for you. But uh, I guess I'm sure you've had, you're probably asked this quite often, but like how did you manage both this burgeoning career uh, and budding career and superstar career with – uh, this home life. You know, I think what my husband, one, I think it's really important to have a partner who sees eye to eye with you. That's critical because if they don't, that's just hugely problematic. And I think we just, we're both very ambitious for each other. So that was very helpful to have someone when I'd say like, oh my God, I'm being sent to Thailand to go do this thing. He'd be like, oh my God, that's so cool. You know, how are we going to figure out, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Also, I guess I just didn't stress over that much stuff. Like, you know, I I, I do remember once my daughter, Sophia, my oldest, would say, Samantha's mom, you know, cuts the edges off her sandwiches. Samantha's mom walks her to school every day. And my husband said, we need to get Samantha's mom a job because Samantha's mom is pissing me off. Samantha's mom is actually lovely. But, you know, like, I think we just didn't take it all that seriously. And I partly, I really love my job. I didn't feel like I was grinding away. I, it was going well. I, I very much enjoyed it all the time. And I wanted to be happy and get to do what I wanted to do. I don't think there's ever really balance. I think timing out, I mean, I'd sign a contract, get pregnant. I was very intentional. I mean, I would tell young people this at NABJ. I'm like, let me tell you, time out when you're going to have your kids, if you can. Not everybody can, but I didn't want to negotiate pregnant. You know, literally you lose money. So I would make sure that I would, you know, get back in shape and sign another contract and then knock out kids after I'd sign the contract. Um, Just being very intentional about how I ran my career. Had my first kid at 35. So I wanted to make sure that I got in a certain distance in my career because being an anchor who has kids is really cute. Being a producer, not so cute. People don't like it. You know, it just gave you more ability and more leeway. And I had more money to be able to pay for the stuff that I needed to do. Like if I had to jump in a car, I could jump in a car, um, you know, and I could afford to do that. So I think I just tried to be really intentional about what we were investing in. And then just, you know, not stress about shit that doesn't matter. Yeah. I mean, really, I hear so much about guilt and this and that. And sometimes, like, kids are very resilient. You have to love them. And I would say to them all the time, like, we just do stuff differently. We just mm. do different stuff. And sometimes it's going to be really fun. And we're going to fly to Cuba because I get to interview the president of the United States. And you get to meet your cousins. And other times we're going to, I'm going to be traveling and I'm not going to be around. I miss my daughter's, oh, my God. She went to a school where they literally had graduation every year. 
fourth grade graduation. She's still mad about it. She's about to graduate from high school. Well, you, She's pissed about my missed her fourth grade graduation. Okay. Well, get over yourself. Come on. Come on. Yeah. Well, you know. Everybody she, needs something to talk about in therapy, and correct. this can be her thing, right? going to have something to hold over you. Yeah, exactly. Um, so who, who in the foursome there has uh, uh, a significant other? Who in the foursome? Well, at one point, all of them had a significant other, really? which I didn't really date till I was in college. So it was so weird for me to see them having girlfriends and boyfriends. But um, but I actually think it was good. I wish that I had been dating people when I was in. I mean, we were the only black family in my town, so like no one was going to date me. Um, so I didn't really start dating till I was in college. But I, I I think watching them with their boyfriends and how they navigate it and be surrounded by their girlfriends and it just becomes very normal, right? It's not a thing. I think it's going to be good to go off to college. And you've already had a boyfriend or two. Like, you've already had – it's no big deal. Um, I'm excited for them on that front. I think eighth grade is young to have a girlfriend. Uh, yeah. Right? <laughs> right. But Well, I had a very strict parent, so it was a little different. Um, and, you know, I had a, a relationship in high school. But I, and I was one of those that believed that it was going to last forever. So I don't know if they went through through that part. Uh, you're like, no, nah, no, I don't think they. Yeah, see, I, I think the boys date. especially are like, I don't know how I got into this, but I have a girlfriend somehow. <laughs> right. Once I suggested over Christmas, like maybe you should buy your girlfriend something for you know for Christmas. We're we're, we're out of the country. Like it might be nice to get a little token. And they're like, nope, nope, nope. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. So I'm not sure how serious it all was. Now, have they brought home anybody that you didn't like? Um, no, I like everybody. They've all broken up. I mean, now they're all, it's <laughs> right, all so ended. Didn't so it didn't matter. And my guess is it's going to be like that. Right. No, I, I, you know, they're all sweet kids. I do always warn the boys. Like, I will kill you if you hurt my child. <laughs> kill you. I will hunt you down. <laughs> Expose you on TV. Exactly right. right. Um is it weird for them at all to to have a mother who's in the the public eye? No, I think they're used to it. Mm-hmm. They're embarrassed because I curse a lot. Uh, because I That's was so I funny. was calling out CNN the other day about that stupid article they did on um, is the royal baby? Oh, how black be is this baby gonna be? How black is a baby? Right? You're like. <laughs> Did you, I really want to know, would the baby be a redhead? I thought that would be a cute question. Like, I mean, so stupid. So my daughter's like, oh, mom, all the moms are saying that you're going crazy on Twitter. I'm like, that is not a lie. That is actually well, true. Well, they deserved it. It's like, that was a stupid headline. They were so like, stupid. Yeah, just like, stop already. But you, that was just prone for somebody um, to make a mistake. And it just certainly and speaks to who, uh, or the lack of diversity that may well, be there. Which was my point, right? Which is... Sometimes some of these headlines require someone to say, you know, maybe that's not a good headline. Maybe what we want to do is talk about this is history making and we should frame it this way. But, you know, instead you get a lot of craziness because you just don't have enough people, I think, who have good insight or have enough are high enough up in the hierarchy to feel comfortable saying, yeah, this is not how we want to put this. This is not OK. Yeah. Now, um, you know, obviously parenting has been uh, a big part. Do you want to have kids? Dang, Soledad, hey, is that a bad question? No, is that a bad question? Look, I'm supposed to be interviewing you. This is not going the other way around, all right? Uh, look, I'm just getting used to being engaged, all right? So now you're like, you want to have kids? Like, um, well, you know, I guess I'll um, I'll answer it this way. For a long time, I really, really didn't. And oh, That's interesting. Why yeah. not? I don't know. It just never really... Oh, by the way, it sounds amazing. I mean, and I love my children. They know I love them. But that, it just sounds like... I knew that for a long time, I didn't even think I would ever get married. And a lot of it was, you know, my career was my first love. I was, you know, as you know, this is a very transient profession. I've lived in five different cities. I lived in three cities last year alone. Okay. (laughs) And so, uh, you know, you move around a lot and you kind of get used to that kind of lifestyle of always being on the go. And, um, you know, marriage hasn't exactly been great for the women in my family. And so it was that part of it, too. I didn't really have, a, I would say, a lot of great examples of, of what that is supposed to look like in a, in a healthy way. And, um, yeah, I mean, some of it is just, you know, just kind of uh, me and, you know, I guess being an only child and all this. And I was just like, all right, I'm, I'm content. I've never been one of those women who felt like marriage needed to complete me. Right. And But as they often say, uh, you make plans and God laughs, right? So, um you know, fast forward, uh, as I matured and especially as I got more successful in my career, I saw it would be it would be a possibility. It would be nice. And then, you know, I met somebody who obviously I want to spend uh, the rest of my life with. And so it's put a lot of different 
things I hadn't considered before on the table. Now, I'm not saying that's an absolute yes, but what I am saying is that at this point in my life, it's more of an open question than it's ever been. And it's never happened to me before. So this is all things that I'm getting used to and um, thinking about. But hey, like everybody else, I'm very aware of what that looks like for black women in particular now health-wise. You know, I'm 43. Um, I had a cousin who died in childbirth Mm -hmm. um, last year. And so uh, it can be a very dangerous proposition, not based off income level or regional or, you know, black women are dying in childbirth at a rate that we haven't seen since um, the late 1800s. So that part is very scary as well. So I guess... um, you know, that was a long-winded way of me not answering your question no, <laughs> with a direct kinda, answer. Kind of, sort of. I, really, sorta. I have really, I, I, I knew I wanted to have kids. I really have enjoyed it. It's been, a, they're, they're a lot of fun. And I would say if it's just, I move around a lot and there's a lot of, like, kids are just so flexible. And sometimes I think we have these rules. Like, oh, well, you know, they need to do this and this. And you can really raise them. It's like negotiating. You can just figure out, like, this is important to me. I want to have good little people. That's it. Like, that's all I need. I now, need did to you do... always know you wanted to have kids? Oh, I knew I'd have I wanted okay. to have six kids. Well, you come from a very big family. I wanted to have six kids. And my husband cool. is has a sister. <laughs> and we had two kids. And I'm like, I'm really, this is not enough. And he's like, I'm good. This is good. I'm fine. And then we had twins. And I was like, I'm good. <laughs> <We're> <laughs> right. But I've really, I've really enjoyed it. And I'm a big fan of people who don't have kids. I'm like, do you. Pick what you, have the life you want to lead and go and do it. But but I would say don't talk yourself out of something because lifestyle is like a lot. Kids are very flexible. Yeah. You know? Well, they, 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 um, I'm sure they can adapt. But, you know, some of it too is like, I kind of like my life. You I know? know. That's not, and believe me, I'm so jealous when I'm thinking, like, oh my God. So just the two of you. Wow. That sounds amazing. <laughs> it sounds nice. What's that like? Um, so speak- and also money. You get to hang on to it. You don't just open a window and throw it out the window every <laughs> yeah. single day. You got four college, oh. college educations to pay College isn't even the part of it, it's just the everything. Yeah. They, they literally ten- walk around with their hands out. And they eat I, a lot, uh, right? Yeah. Oh my gosh. So I've heard. Yeah. Yeah. It's, especially you have teenage boys. So I imagine they eat like they have a tapeworm. So. And they're also just disgusting. Like like they have a tapeworm. Literally, my boys play lacrosse, and they uh, I, the other day I was cleaning out their bags. They had sandwiches from months ago in their bag. It, they didn't smell that. They didn't care. They wow. didn't care. Boys are disgusting. They're disgusting. <laughs> Good to know. Um, I love them, but they're disgusting. <laughs> now, um, you know, uh, speaking of your family, on a less lighter note, I mean, I know you recently lost your mom. You oh, lost your your both your parents. My dad and yeah. my mom in forty days. Yeah. and you know, it's so weird. Like they were both elderly mm-hmm. and and sick. You know, and very frail. Like I knew it, it was not a surprise at all. And if you said I can wave the swan, Soledad, and bring them back, and they'll be back in their apartment just the way they were, I would say, oh my god, please do not. They were just struggling at the end. Mm -hmm. But I've been surprised at how it's just like a wallop. I mean, for someone who's not surprised uh, at all, it's been really hard. I really miss them a lot. I really miss them a lot. And I break down in tears all the time about it. It's so weird. I feel even as I'm breaking down in tears, I'm like, this is so weird. Why am I breaking down in tears? But I I really miss them a lot. So what were those... For both, for, for uh, you know, both of uh, you and them, what were those last kind of few months, you know, like? Because they, they died so close together. Yeah, you know, uh, for my dad, who um, developed a, a, he had a lung issue um, toward, I really got to, I was so lucky. I got to spend literally the last days with them. And on the last day that he was alive, he was trying to get out of bed. And he just couldn't understand that he couldn't get out of bed because when he walked around, it kind of triggered his lung issues. And I was literally pinning him down in bed and saying, Daddy, I can't hold you down. I need you to listen to me. It was just tough. It was just, you know, to see something. He had a chronic cough and he would say, I still have this cold. And we all knew it wasn't a cold. And we just didn't tell him, you know. And and it was just hard. It was just hard to watch someone struggle who you really, really love. You're going to make me cry. Um, and then my mom, as soon as my dad died, we knew she wasn't going to last mm-hmm. because they were just so tight, you know. And they really live for each other, so she just she just wouldn't sleep, and and she had dementia. So some days she'd wake up and know she'd call me up. Hey, listen, did you know your dad died? You know, this would be a week after the funeral, and then other days she'd say, you know, I can't find your father anywhere, and do you have any idea where your dad is? And we'd have to start again with that, you know, this idea like, well, mom, dad died. Remember we were at the funeral the other day, so it just went downhill immediately, and we knew she wasn't going to survive. I'm sure that, um, you know, you obviously you, you still think about them. You have these memories. But does it my mother said this to me once because she's lost both her parents now that it it hits you at certain moments where you realize you're alone in the world. 
and not alone because you have children, you have a husband, but the people that are responsible for bringing you to this world are no longer here. I Some people have said that to me. I had a girlfriend who lost her dad at the same time. And so between myself and another girlfriend, we've had like five people die in two months. It was terrible. But no, that was never, I don't, I never felt like, oh, I'm an orphan now. I don't even know what that is outside of like a weird Hollywood, you know, <laughs> like, um, I just don't know that I did a good job for them. I don't, you know, my dad was always very lonely for old people to get very lonely. And mm-hmm. and it wasn't something I could help him with. Right. I think he wanted my mom to get up. Mm-hmm. And um, she couldn't, obviously. And so I think that's the thing that upsets me the most is like, I just, did I do everything I could do to help him? Well, I'm, I'm sure you did, and I'm sure they were. <laughs> Thank you for the tissues. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they were. I hate you for making me I, cry. That's but what I, you get for that show? <laughs> for that kid's question. Now, there you go. <laughs> You're like, turnabout is fair play, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, I, I'm sure you did, and I'm sure they were um, I don't know. Uh, extremely I don't know. proud of you, too. Yeah, you know, my parents are very, um, yes, I think that they they were not proud about things, material things. They wanted people to be good people, and but... I don't know, you know, at the end of the day, did you, uh, like, I realized kind of the last few months of my mom's life how much they love music. And so I I hired a guy to come in and play, and my dad loved it, and my mom, you know, but I realized, it, like, the last few months, I just didn't, it didn't occur to me that I should just get someone to come in and play. And I remember thinking, like, you know, all these healthcare things, like, yes, once a month or once a week you can have. And I'm like, I want someone every day to come, like, what does that cost just have that person show up. Right. I don't, but I didn't. I didn't. Didn't think about it. I didn't think about it yeah. until the last six months. I just. It never crossed my mind until the last six months that I could just have someone come and play music for them, and they would love it every day. Well, sometimes you know, it says kids. There are a whole host of things you never find out, or you find out sometimes late about your parents that you didn't know because you don't conceptualize them if as people who live these whole right. other lives right. before you came along. I know. You're like, what? My mama likes ice cream? Like, <laughs> you just don't know because that's kind of the role. Because I'm sure your kids, there are things about you that they they have no idea about you. you as they were working on their essays, I would always be like, so you know I'm a professional writer. Like, I, I actually get paid money <laughs> right. by help people and, and companies to write mm-hmm. things professionally. So... <laughs> So you could, if you need help, I could help you for free <laughs> over here because well, that's what I do. That's good of you to offer to do it for free. Yeah. Um, <laughs> or what, just bill myself back. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Because my mother, when she was in, in school getting her uh, bachelor's, she was asking me to write a paper. And I was like, you do realize people pay me to do this. <laughs> right, right. Like, I can't really, you know, like, is there something in it for me? Some, right. some of your fried Friends chicken. Friends and family. Yeah, right. You know, some of your famous fried chicken you're going to fry for me? Yeah. Like, what, what are we doing here? But... No, I mean, it's, and more importantly, your your children got to know their grandparents. I know, and they're very close. Yeah. They were great. They yeah. really were so close to their grandparents. So all that was great. It just was very, I tell you, I literally, I cry about it every day. I mm. really do. I don't know that I did enough for them. And, you know, that's an interesting generation because they're not a demanding generation. Because believe me, when I'm old, I'm going to be like, listen, so here, I've made a list of what I need. And so which one of you is taking me to get my mani-pedi today or doing my mani-pedi? Even better. <laughs> like, but see, you have four, so you could spread that I'll around. I'll be demanding. Yeah, my pa- you know, and then they were just, you know, they just were like, everything's fine. Every-. You'd always discover stuff. Like, mm-hmm. bills are sitting here not paid. Are you overwhelmed by your bills? Well, you know, yes, I'm feeling overwhelmed. Like, you discover these things. Right, so you have very- to dig a little to figure it out. I'll be paying. I can't pay these bills. <laughs> I don't want to live in this house. I, 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 need, I need a vacation. <laughs> Oh, and I'm sure they'll be happy to do it. Well, um, I'm done making you sad. And oh, thank um, you. now I'm going to make you laugh by telling you what our final segment is. <laughs> what I'm talking about in the final segment uh, is not funny, that's for sure. But at least the title of the segment is funny. So we close out every episode of Jamel Hill is Unbothered with a cute little segment, sure to get a sponsor, absolutely called Fuck It Unbothered. So uh, that is coming up next as we wrap things up with Soledad O'Brien. It's that time where we close out uh, an episode of the podcast with this is like, you know, how people say this is the hottest show on late night TV. <laughs> it's the hottest segment in the history of podcasts, a segment we call Fuck It, I'm Bothered. 
So here is my fuck it, I'm bothered. Um, I honestly, in a way, though, I feel like we should rename this segment, especially with what I've been talking about lately, some of the, the topics called We're Living in the Last Days, because that's what it feels like, right? So on the day of the taping of this particular podcast with Soledad, uh, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, you know, the one who cheated his way into office with a questionable victory over Stacey Abrams in his voter suppression antics, he signed what is known as the fetal heartbeat bill, uh, which outlaws abortion after six weeks. So everybody do the math. That means that if you are two weeks late on your period— and you try to have an abortion, it's a wrap. Like, that option is no longer there. Now, that's one level of what I call fuckery. The other level is the bill called HB 481 also criminalizes women who seek abortions because under the definition of this law, a fetus is now considered to be a human, and a woman who self-terminates an abortion is considered to have committed murder. Murder, by the way, in Georgia means life imprisonment or capital punishment. Now, the second level of fuckery, if that wasn't bad enough, women who miscarry because of their own conduct, let's say they were using drugs while they were pregnant, would be liable for second degree murder, which is punishable um, of 10 to 30 years of imprisonment. So a prosecutor could interrogate a woman if she miscarried and determine if she was at fault. Now, there's a whole lot of ways that fault can be interpreted. And you're leaving this up to a prosecutor. By the way. Ohio said to Georgia, hold my beer, because they have a bill, House Bill 182, which has been passed, where they also would punish a woman who even seeks an abortion in another state. <laughs> okay. Up to Can ten. they do that? You would think at some point, and I expect for in, in both of these bills case, I, I expect that there will be a lot of legal challenges um, positioned against, obviously, Roe versus Wade. But this feels like the handmaid's tale that we're living in. And I've said this before, mostly to myself and maybe a few friends, is that, man, can you imagine the world if women were in charge of men's reproductive rights? And some of these bills, especially that one in Ohio where they're talking about re-implanting a fetus, a procedure that doesn't even exist, okay? It doesn't exist. And you can tell just based off the language in some of these bills, they have no idea how women's bodies actually work. So... Whether you're pro-choice or pro-life, people should look at this as a significant step toward basically taking more and more freedoms. Because that's what we're all about here is freedoms, right? Except when it comes to certain things, but more and more freedoms and liberties away from women. And to make it even worse, criminalizing them on top of that, as if we've learned nothing from all the examples of mass incarceration that have taken place in this country. Interesting to want to kill people Mm -hmm. for... Abortion. Yeah. That seems like... There's something about that. The disconnect. Yeah. Doesn't work for Just me. Just doesn't work. Um, and we won't even get into how in um, some of these cases, especially in certain cities, state like Georgia, you know, you take a look at the support that they give parents who do have children, especially if you are low income. Yeah. You can take a look at that and then match that with what's done in this bill and say, you guys don't even care about the children that are living. All right. Now, all of a sudden, you have a lot to say about people as they make these, you know, very personal decisions as to what to do uh, with their bodies. So anyway, I just thought I should highlight that. And it, again, shows why voting matters. So, you know, what's happened in Georgia and what's about to happen in Ohio as I said, we are living in the last days. Because I hope in- these are not the last days or if they're the last days, they're the last days of people acting as if they can set out, set out elections because they don't matter to them. Right. Because they always do. And unfortunately, more and more with the increased things, not just like with this, but a, a whole host of things happening in our country. I just often sigh and say to myself, Thanos was right. Thanos was right. My Marvel comic heads will get that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, thank you, um, Soledad, for spending some time with me. This is the longest conversation we've been everywhere to have. Because I know. we're always high and by. Right, right. And it's just like, hey. Well, I'm, I'm a big fan. I'm so happy that I'm you invited fan. me on. Oh, I look just happy to be in your presence. And, and keep on challenging the media structures because we need uh, somebody like you holding the media accountable. So we all appreciate that, especially a fellow journalism nerd like myself. I uh, hope everybody out there is having a good day. And remember to stay unbothered. Mm-hmm. 
Mel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify Studios and Unbothered Inc. and recorded and edited by Rich Burner and Cadence 13. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Evan Dick is our executive producer. Jesse Burton is the executive producer for Spotify. And Denise Holly is the program manager. Our theme music is provided by Corey Greenleaf and Ben Darwish. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. <laughs>